And so let's uh, look at Colossians chapter 2. Follow with me as I read the first seven verses. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We have here this morning what many refer to as the hinge verses of the whole book of Colossians, uh, verses 6 and 7, where we will spend most of our time uh, this morning. Uh, But here we have the importance of the basic instructions that the Apostle Paul has given to us who know Christ as far as what it means to continue to walk in Christ. Uh, It was a number of years ago that an issue of Meat and Poultry magazine quoted from a publication of the California Poultry Industry Federation telling the following story. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has a unique device for testing the strength of windshields on airplanes. The device is a gun that launches a dead chicken at a plane's windshield at approximately the speed the plane flies. The theory is that if the windshield doesn't crack from the carcass impact, it'll survive a real collision with a bird during flight. It seems the British were very interested in this and wanted to test a windshield on their brand new speedy locomotive that they were developing, and so they followed the FAA's chicken launcher. They borrowed it and they followed the instructions, they loaded the chicken and they fired. The ballistic chicken shattered the windshield, broke the engineer's chair, and embedded itself in the back wall of the engine's cab. The British were stunned, and they asked the FAA to recheck the test to see if everything was done correctly. And the FAA reviewed the test thoroughly and had only one recommendation. Use a thawed chicken. So following basic instructions is really important. Uh, It's really, really important, especially in your spiritual life. Following instructions from God in regard to your spiritual life can mean the difference between a life of flourishing with him and a life of uh, sadness and despair apart from Christ. But the good news is that God has given us his word, and and he's given us his word so that we will come to know him and then become equipped to live for him, to live a life that is for his glory and a life that is filled with fruitfulness. And how well you follow God's instructions really determines the outcome of your faith. 
Either you discipline yourself to follow God's word and, and reap the, the joyful contentment and peace of knowing Christ, or you follow your heart and you end up being harmed by false ways. The Colossian believers were being harmed. They were being led astray by false teachings, worldly philosophies, religious restrictions and legalistic rules. And therefore, the apostle calls them back to what it means to know Christ and to walk in Christ, to walk in the obedience of faith. He reminds them to follow the instructions that is the doctrines of the Christian faith that he had previously taught them. So our big idea this morning is this, walking in Christ requires ongoing submission to his lordship and becoming established in doctrine. The salvation that we find in Christ that is presented to us in the Bible is not a transaction, but it is about transformation. And we live in a culture in which so many people have come to understand the gospel or the doctrine of the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ simply as a transaction rather than as transformation. And though the Christian life does begin with an event, a moment in time, whereby we are made alive unto God through the gospel through faith in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is an ongoing growth and progression of faith in our walk with Christ that is connected to who we are in him and the doctrines of the scriptures. And so you find this word walk, which we've seen in earlier parts of the book, but uh, in verse 6, it's a key Concept that we are to walk in him. That is, as we have received Christ the Lord, so we walk in him. The word walk refers to our conduct in life as it was described there in chapter 1 and verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. <clears throat> in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses this word a lot. Um, he tells us to walk worthy, to walk in newness of life, to walk in wisdom, to walk in love, to walk in the light, and, and so on. So, in other words, the, the point here is that when we as sinners come to that place of seeing our problem, that is, that we are lost sinners, hopelessly lost, but that God has provided for us the gift of eternal life through his son, through the perfect work of his son, the sinless son of God who died on the cross for our sins and three days later rose from the dead to give us new life. When that becomes a reality in our minds and in our hearts, our walk changes. We were going this way and now in repentance, we turn, and by God's grace, we are now walking in a whole different direction. That's the walk that the apostle is talking about here. And then the command then that is given to the Colossians is that they would grow in conducting their lives according to the instructions that the apostle gave 
to them. And so he's referring here to a continual, habitual action of of walking and developing spiritually in him. As we've seen multiple times already in the book of Colossians, that God's goal for us is that we would grow up, that we would grow up in Christ, that we would grow to maturity. It brings no pleasure to the Lord who gave his only son to purchase us from salvation to watch us remain as infantile spiritual babies who are content <clears throat> to, with principles rather than a growing relationship with a person who are content to follow a man's system rather than falling in deeper and deeper love with a savior. And that's what Paul is after here in these verses. So in verses four through seven, we see three means to staying on track as we walk toward maturity in Christ. Number one, avoid deluders and their disorderly doctrine. Verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's talking about deceivers here. Religious deceivers, spiritual deceivers, people who are more interested in gathering followers of of themselves rather than rooting and building people up in Christ so that they will follow Christ. That's one of the main differences between a deluder or a deceiver and someone who is a faithful teacher of the word of God. One is after followers The other is after maturing growth in following Christ. Because Christ is the only one who is worthy to be followed without question. The word delude means to beguile. So these were deceivers who propagated doctrines that caused disruption in the spiritual progress of new believers. They were dangerous teachers, Homer Kent writes, who were extremely eloquent and persuasive. He goes on to say, truth itself can be persuasive, but when truth has been abandoned or distorted by a teacher, he must depend for his effectiveness upon such tactics as oratory, smooth talking, that is, and he says, Christian history is filled with small talking excuse me, smooth-talking charlatans. It matters not whether their platform is a pulpit or a classroom or a radio microphone or a television camera. Eloquence and persuasiveness can be a great asset in the proclamation of truth, but it can also mask serious error. The discerning listener must evaluate what he hears and must test it by the word of God. And Paul's heart is grieved here because new believers are more susceptible to false teachers than than others because discernment has not yet developed in their life through the constant teaching of sound doctrine. And so they can be easily led astray and, and convinced to follow not a person but principles and not a savior but a system We need to test everything that we hear against the word of God. And and these doctrines 
these deceitful teachers present their plausible arguments, which then create disorder. They create disorder in people's lives. Like 2 Timothy 2 warns us, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God then will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. These deceptive doctrines lead to disorder in people's lives, not the order that characterizes God and those who follow God. Orderly doctrine leads to orderly living. Disorderly doctrine leads to disordered living. There's a second means of staying on track, and that is found in verse 5, and that is to appreciate orderliness and steadfastness of faith. So you can see now the contrast between verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 is a warning. The apostle warns his readers not to be deceived by these disorderly, deluding, deceitful, false teachers. Uh, Then he says, I'm so thankful for what I hear of the orderliness of, of some of you. For though I am absent in body, he says in verse 5, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so they were, they were planted on a really good solid foundation, but then these false teachers started propagating disorderly doctrines that then were throwing some of the believers off track. And even though Paul isn't with them, he understands that he can still have a ministry to them. He says, I'm absent in body. See, Paul's in prison in Rome when he's writing this letter. And these are believers he hasn't even met yet. This is a church that was founded by people that that he had led to the Lord in another place. And now um, these believers are growing, but they're also being tested Uh, And some of them are being led astray. And so he says, I'm praying for you, is essentially what he's saying. I'm with you in spirit. We've seen that already in the ways that he prayed for them. So even though he was not with them physically, he was able to minister to them spiritually through prayer. And he rejoiced to see their good order. Good order is a military term It reminds us that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And he is encouraged to hear of their orderliness and the firmness of their faith in Christ. This refers to stability and steadfastness and and, and that which is solid. So Paul was able to help to protect them through his prayers and through his teaching via writing. He was able to help people that he had not met and perhaps never met in the course of his lifetime. But you can see the great contrast here between deceitful, deluding doctrines that distort Christ 
and the disorder that it produces in people's lives and the sound doctrine of Christ which leads to orderliness in people's lives. And I've seen this over the course of my over 30 years in in pastoral ministry. It, It seems that some professing Christians, when they get into strange doctrines, something happens. Either they awaken to the truth and God the Holy Spirit through his word corrects them and they find the good path of sound doctrine or they just keep getting weirder and weirder. And their teachers, their teachings just become stranger and stranger to the point where you're like, where in the world did you get these ideas from? And so when, when we're placed in these opportunities where we hear things that are like red flags or yellow flags in our mind, we should go back to scripture and say, is this true? What is true according to God's word? According to the doctrine of Christ? What measures up? What passes the test? So the apostle is encouraged here that some are following Christ in an orderly way, not a chaotic, disordered kind of uh, living. And then there's a third means to stay on track, and here's where we're going to spend most of our time because these are the two verses which, as I said, are the hinge for the whole book. Uh, The whole book turns on these two verses, and that's why we've already been touching on them uh, a number of times. But notice what the apostle says, therefore, in other words, because there are the threats of these, these false teachings that lead to disorderly lives, and, and there is a blessing to following the correct doctrine of the word given by a God of orderliness, because all that is true, you need to keep walking in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the third means to stay on track is this, abide in Christ and in sound doctrine. We are called as those who uh, are professing faith in Christ and, and following Christ to abide in Christ, to stay closely connected to him so that we do not get distracted and led astray by man-made teachings and philosophies and religious systems. Well, let's look at what this means. You can see six characteristics of the abiding walk. Number one, the abiding walk begins and continues by faith. It begins and continues by faith. Look at verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So we are called to walk the walk of faith. Paul says, just as you received Christ is how you are to walk in him. Well, how did you receive Christ? By faith. Ephesians 2, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And and how did they receive this teaching that they then embraced? They received it through the apostles' ministry in their lives. 
just as you were taught, it says in verse 6. Paul reminds the Philippians in a similar way. He writes in Philippians 4, 9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Paul was able to say that by the grace of God, he was preaching faithfully according to scripture. And he was also by the grace of God, striving to live his life in accordance with scripture. And so he was able to say to the Philippians, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. This is, this is the, the twofold context of, or the makeup of of someone who is really effective in ministry and the ministry of of spiritual reproduction that is producing more and more followers of Jesus Christ, that they're faithful in their teaching, but they're also striving to be faithful in their living. And that's something to always be looking for. These teachers, these false teachers, they had all these eloquent arguments, all these, these weird principles and systems that that the people were supposed to follow but when you looked at their lives their lives were chaos there was no beautiful Christ likeness to follow all you were following was their weird teachings and so these believers had received Christ through the instruction that they had received from Paul and and that is a testimony of Romans 10, verse 17, which says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It is through the preaching of God's word that God awakens souls. <laughs> he, he breathes new life into spiritually dead people like we all who know Christ uh, once were. The gospel caused these believers to be born again by the living word of God. It wasn't the eloquent, clever arguments of these teachers that caused them to experience new life in Christ. It was the faithful proclamation of Christ. That is what gave birth to people. Cause them to be born again by the power of the living word of God. So Paul's point is basically this, that, that we are saved through the teaching of the word and we then grow to maturity the same way through the teaching of the word. It's not like we come to know Christ through the gospel and now we then move on to some kind of a principle or system of religion no, it's staying connected, abiding in the one who gave us the new life in the first place. Continually growing in what it means to abide in Christ, to walk in Christ. Secondly, the abiding walk thrives in submission, 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 It should say submissive union. Oh, that's what yours says. Cool. (laughs) Mine's all weirded out. Okay, so anyway, thrives in submissive union with Christ. (laughs) What is is that drawing attention to? Well, look at verse 6. 
As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So in him refers to our union with Christ. That is the moment that we come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We are transferred out of darkness into light. We are placed into a new kingdom, a new family, and we are united with Christ. So we are in him. What that means is that we have a whole new position before God. And and it radically transforms every part of our lives. But notice the title that's given here to Christ. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ Jesus the Lord. There are many professing believers, professing Christians in America today, who are very quick to say, that Jesus is their savior. But when it comes to the functional living of their lives, there's a big question mark as to whether or not when they received this Jesus, they also understood that he has authority over their lives, that he is Lord. And Jesus is both. Savior and Lord. You can't take out your spiritual scissors and cut him in half and say, well, I like the Savior part of Jesus because he'll take my sins away, but I don't like the Lord part of Jesus because I want to keep being my own master. I want to go to heaven when I die, yeah, but I want to live it up as best I can for myself while I'm here. And Paul says, no, You didn't come to that kind of a cut-in-half Jesus. You received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that's the one that now you are to walk in. He is Christ. That is, he is the anointed, promised Messiah. He is Savior. That's what the word Jesus, the name Jesus means Savior. Or the one who saves. And he is Lord, Adonai, Master. Now, why is Paul driving this home to them? Because he wants them to understand that they received a person, not a philosophy. They received a person, not a principle. They received a Savior, not a system. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Romans 10.9 keeps all of this wrapped together in one package when it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Let me ask you, if you profess to know Jesus, what Jesus did you come to? When you came to him, did you come to him merely as a savior? The one who would take your guilt away and someday then usher you into the presence of God in heaven? Or did you come to him who is savior, cleanses you, because he's also Lord and has the authority to cleanse us from our sins and now demands that he is the new authority in your life. 
there are too many people who call themselves Christians today who came to Jesus as Savior, but they just continue to live their lives as their, their own authority. They're not going to submit to this sovereign Lord who says that he died in their place. That died in their place and rose to forgive them is great, but reigning on high at the right hand of the Father now as the one who has authority over their life, I'm not sure about that. Who did you come to? Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Charles Spurgeon says this, it's interesting to notice that the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word savior occurs only twice in the book of Acts. On the other hand, it is amazing to notice that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus 13 times and the Lord Jesus Christ 6 times all in the same book. And so the gospel clearly is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the foundation of, of everything else now that Paul is, is calling them to as they walk in Christ. The abiding walk thrives in submissive union with Christ. Number three, the abiding walk is sustained by life in Christ. It is sustained by life in Christ. Notice verse seven, rooted, rooted. At, at the moment of our conversion, we are connected to Christ. We are rooted in him. And this is obviously botanical language. And um, those of you who know anything about plants and trees especially, you understand that there's a general principle when it comes to the root system of a tree, that, that the root system of a tree is oftentimes as broad as the branches are broad. And it's interesting then, as, as you think about that as a spiritual analogy, as we are rooted in Christ and we continue to grow and deeper and deeper and deeper in a more, uh, a bigger root system, so to speak, there is an increase of fruitfulness and flourishing of branches that bear fruit and provide shade for those who need hope in Christ. Surely Paul was also thinking about Jesus and his urging to us in John 15 as he's using this rooted language. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We can do nothing for Christ. We can do nothing that is of eternal value if we are disconnected from him, if we are not nourishing that connection that began at the moment that we were saved, if we are not remaining rooted in him. Another characteristic is that the abiding walk is built on the foundation of Christ. Rooted and built up 
and built up in him. And, and all this is in the present tense in the original language, means, which means it's, it's always advancing. It's always moving forward. So you could translate this to be building up upon. The point here is, is that there is a superstructure that sits on top of the basement. For those of you who are carpenters, okay? So on top of the basement is the superstructure of, of, of wooden studs or metal framing and, and drywall and all that stuff that's on, on top of the foundation. We are built up on. What are we built up on? Christ. We are built up on the foundation of Christ, just as Ephesians says. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we are built up in the Christian life. We are built up on the foundation of Christ. We are built up upon a person, not a principle on a system, on a savior, not a system. We're built up on Christ, who who is the cornerstone. And connected with that, then we see another characteristic is that the abiding walk becomes established in doctrine and established in the faith. Anytime you you see the the definite article, the, in front of the word faith in the New Testament, it's referring to doctrine. It's referring to a body of doctrine. Not established in faith, but established in the faith. The apostolic doctrine that, that has been left for us in Scripture. The doctrines of the Christian life. And this provides stability for the Christian life. That's why in our, in our growth groups, our small group ministry here, there's always such an emphasis on Bible study and learning doctrine and theology or our Wednesday night equip class always has a, has a theology element to it. Why? Because we want you to be established in the faith so that in the language of Ephesians 4, when the winds of doctrine shift and blow here and there throughout the world and throughout the church, you know what is true, you know what is sound, you know what is solid, and you can stay there. You can sink your roots there. You can build your spiritual house on that. It's the security and stability of sound doctrine. So we do not find our spiritual stability in some kind of a spiritual experience. It's not the spiritual goosebumps that we get. That's not what establishes the the rock-solid foundation for our faith. It's the word of God. Just as you were taught, he says in verse 7. Established in the faith, just as you were taught. So the believer's faith becomes more and more established the more you sit under the consistent sound teaching of God's word. That's when we grow. That's when our spiritual lives really begin to take off. 
when we are sitting under the consistent teaching of sound doctrine. It's like the old hymn says, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. How firm a foundation is the word of God. And then finally we see that this abiding walk overflows with thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving, he says in verse seven. So when the believer's walk is continually fed by sound doctrine and walking with this Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts will abound in thankfulness. Richard Chin writes, one very clear sign of a Christian who's growing in their maturity is their thankfulness. If you are a complainer or you have an anger problem, could this be a sign that you really have a thankfulness problem? He goes on to say, mature Christians have a gospel-saturated thankfulness. The more we grow in Christ, the more we are established in the faith, the more we are able to respond to the trials that come our way with a sense of joy in our hearts and thankfulness, even though things can really hurt. Life can really be painful and trying at times. And yet, when we know Christ and our faith is being established in sound doctrine, there is still a level of gratitude that we can sense in our hearts because it's focused on Christ and all that he has done for us. So the more we walk with Christ through various kinds of suffering, being rooted and grounded in him, the more content and thankful we become. When our lives are rooted and grounded in this Christ, this Lord, this Savior who, who gave his life for us on the cross and rose again to give new life, eternal life to every kind of sinner who will turn to him and, and come with empty-handed faith and receive this Christ, the Lord. We'll begin to experience this new walk, this new life that then overflows with thanksgiving. So let me wrap it all up for you in one simple statement, which I hope will help you to stay on track and keep growing toward a well-balanced, Christ-like maturity. And that is this. We worship a person, not a principle. A savior, not a system. When you keep everything centered and focused on the preeminent one, the Lord Jesus Christ, it will protect you from man-made systems and religious principles that seek to draw you away from the centrality of Christ and become a follower of men rather than a follower of Christ. 
There is no worldly philosophy or religious system of legalistic regulations that can produce the kind of spiritual walk that is described here. Only new life in Christ, fed by the word of God through the Holy Spirit, will lead to a stable and fruitful life characterized by maturity in him. May we stay close to Christ by staying close to his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you have given to us. And thank you, Father, that you didn't just save us and then leave us to fend for ourselves here in this world, but you also gave us your word and your indwelling spirit so that we would become established in the faith rooted and built up in Christ. Father, you know every heart here today and how your Holy Spirit has spoken to each heart. And I pray that he would continue to do his work that would produce then the kind of response to Christ the Lord that you desire from us. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.